everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report here on Tube City Online Radio in McKeesport, where we deal with consumer issues. If you are a first-time listener, this is the Consumer Review Report. We will talk about products and services and inform you of any recalls or scams that are out there to help keep your money in your pocket. All right, so this Consumer Review Report is heard Sundays at 4 p.m., Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 a.m. And if you miss our regularly scheduled shows, you can catch the podcasts on wmck.fm slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. And uh, if you have any ideas of any products or services you would like to hear on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter uh, on, at CRR in McKeesport. So um, you can get in touch with me in any of those ways. Also, if you have any comments or you know, questions about any products or services you hear on the show, you can certainly get in touch with me in those same way. Uh, ConsumerReviewReport at gmail.com. I'm also on uh, uh, Twitter at CRR in McKeesport and on Facebook at ConsumerReviewReport. All right, today I thought we would take a look at uh, Consumer Report Magazine's uh, Ask the Experts sections. Uh, Each month the magazine comes out, they have an Ask the Experts uh, section. So I've compiled a few issues here into one show. Uh, This is probably from March until now, these questions. So, um, So we'll get right into that. Also, uh... Some of these questions will have audio expounding a little bit about the issues so we can uh, learn a little bit about enameled cast iron versus just regular cast iron. Um, Also, LED TVs, mini LED TVs, what is the difference? So we'll learn a little bit about that. Uh, when we get to those questions, and then uh, robocalls. I know some of you probably get those robocalls, whether they're concerning auto warranties, uh, you will be arrested, uh, you know, the IRS is contacting you, things like that. Uh, we'll maybe learn how to stop those robocalls, all right? So, let's get to our first question. Of course, it's a coronavirus question. And if this question has not been answered yet, we will (laughs) repeat it. And uh, that question, again, is their Consumer Report magazine's Ask the Expert questions. Is it really so important to get vaccinated for COVID-19? The the, uh, Consumer Report magazine's answer to that is yes. To achieve herd immunity, which is needed for our lives to really return to normal. Experts estimate that 80 to 85% of Americans may need to be vaccinated against COVID-19. So getting vaccinated helps to protect not just you and your family, but also your whole community. 
All the COVID-19 vaccines currently available in the U.S. meet the strict safety standards established by the FDA and have been shown to be highly effective at keeping you from getting COVID-19. And even if you do contract the virus after being vaccinated, you're far less likely to get seriously ill. Being vaccinated could even be required for certain jobs and possibly for activities such as air travel with exemptions such as for health. Now, note, though, that once you get vaccinated, experts advise you that you continue to take precautions such as social distancing and wearing a mask when out in public, which are important for reducing the spread of all variants of the coronavirus. That's because even though vaccinated people are less likely to contract the virus, it's possible they could still spread it to others. Now, this probably was um, some months ago that this uh, came out. So, of course, we're in a phase now where they have um, sort of relaxed the mitigations and the social distancing and the mask wearing and everything like that. But, you know, you never know in the wintertime if all of this is going to start back up again. So, uh, yes, so they answer, yes, it is important to get vaccinated for the COVID-19. If not for, you know, keeping your community safe, at least to be able to participate in activities. You know, a lot of places are like, um, if you're not vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask. Well, You know, you could take that mask off if you are vaccinated. And same with, um, you know, if you want to travel on an airplane, they may advise the same thing. All right. So that's it for our COVID-19 questions. Now, uh, here are some health questions. Consumer Report Magazine asked the expert question, Can I use my smartwatch to check my blood pressure? And so this is the answer. Though Consumer Reports has not yet tested smartwatches and fitness trackers for the accuracy of this feature, we reviewed the medical literature on them and spoke with independent experts who told us that the technologies used by these devices might not match the accuracy of a more traditional home monitor, especially one that uses a cuff on the upper arm. Now, I know they have these ones that check the wrist, so um, I guess they're saying also those may not be as good as as if you have a cuff on the upper arm. Uh, I don't know. So then they go on to say, a traditional monitor measures blood pressure by sensing the pressure exerted by blood on an artery. That's what's happening when the cuff tightens and then relaxes around your arm. Uh, Smartwatches and fitness trackers, on the other hand, gather other data from your body through an optical sensor placed against your skin that emits and measures reflected light to approximate your blood pressure. However, this technology is still fairly new and it's unclear how accurate it can be. While wearables are likely to get better over time, for the best accuracy, our testers say to stick with upper arm cuff devices that perform well in CR's test. So, they are saying hold off on relying on your smartwatch to check your blood pressure and always rely on the upper cuff, 
uh, upper arm cuff uh, way of checking your blood pressure. It still doesn't answer my question about the ones that you put on your wrist. But um, uh, maybe we'll look into that at a later date. How about that? All right. Now, here is a pet question from, again, Consumer Report Magazine's Ask the Expert section. Here is a pet question. Is it safe to buy discounted pet medications online? Here is their answer. The use of pet meds and supplements continue to increase each year, according to the American Pet Products Association. The medications can be expensive. Heartworm medication alone costs dog owners $86 per year on average, cat owners $45. While buying medications directly through your vet may be the priciest option, some experts also think it's the easiest way to be sure prescription medications are safe. Now, the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy reviewed over 22,000 online pharmacies and found that almost 95% don't meet NABP patient safety and pharmacy practice standards or applicable laws. The scope of the problem is expansive, the NABP says. The good news, you can rest assured that NABP-approved retailers are safe and reputable. So it's fine to buy pet medications online as long as you do your homework to make sure the retailer is approved first. Learn whether a website has been approved by the NABP by copying its URL into a search box at Safe Pharmacy. And some of the approved websites include 1-800-PET-MEDS, Chewy, and PetCareRx. So those are some of the the safe websites. All right, here is car questions. Again, from the Consumer Review Uh, Consumer Report Magazine Ask the Experts sections. A couple of car questions. I saw a puddle of clear fluid under my parked car. Should I be worried? Their answer is when you see even a small amount of fluid under your car, it's only natural to think the car could be leaking oil, coolant, or even brake fluid. But don't panic. If it's a warm day and you've had your air conditioning on, it might be just water. When the AC system cools the air inside your vehicle, it also removes moisture. This moisture collects as condensation and usually drains under your car. Take a minute to do a quick spot check just to be sure, like letting the fluid drip onto a piece of cardboard to get a closer look. If the fluid has a smell, appears thick, or has a color to it, for example, an oily rainbow tint, it could be some kind of leak. If you suspect your car's puddle isn't water, have a mechanic inspect the car to avoid a pricey problem later. All right. So another question, how can I keep my auto insurance costs down? The amount you pay for coverage depends on several factors that may be beyond your control, including the state and city you live in, according to a new study by the Zebra, an insurance comparison service. For example, the average 2020 premium in Maryland was $1,415, but in Michigan it was $2,535. 
Consumer Reports has also found that some insurers base their quotes on more personal factors, such as your level of education and job. To combat these practices, the best thing you could do is to shop around every year. Start by contacting direct writer insurers such as Amica and USAA, which have their own representatives and offer competitive prices. Then go to an independent agent who is licensed to sell insurance for multiple companies to find the best possible rate. You can search for independent agents at a site such as trustedchoice.com. And once you find a company you like, you may be able to tweak your plan to lower the price even more. Choosing a $1,000 comprehensive and collision deductible instead of $500 can reduce your cost by 11% according to the Zebra. If the premium exceeds 10% of your car's book value, consider canceling your collision and comprehensive altogether because you could end up paying more than you'd get back in repair or replacement costs. In our ratings of more than 50 insurance companies, USAA, NJM Insurance Group, Amica, and Pemco had high overall satisfaction scores. So there you go your guide to insurance shopping when it comes to your car because i'll tell you it could be more more expensive to insure your car than it is your house so yeah i mean if you can save uh save here and there on your auto insurance it doesn't hurt to shop around and shop around every year because you know they the the insurance people once they have you locked in the rate they're not going to lower your rates you know unless you really uh, negotiate with them i guess so it helps to shop around to different companies uh at least once a year to see if you can get a better uh rate and also uh, choosing your comprehensive and collision deductibles you know 500 versus 1000 will lower your premiums and also uh, that's a good that's a good advice there when they say if the premium exceeds 10 percent of your car's book value consider canceling your collision and comprehensive altogether that's pretty sage advice all right from consumer reports of course here's another auto uh question i haven't used my car in months what should i check before hitting the road Cars were designed to move. When they sit still, parts can become rusted, batteries drain, and critters can move in. Inspect a few things yourself, but if your first trip is going to be a long one, have it serviced by a pro. To start, check the tire pressure. Proper uh, inflation level is on a sticker in the driver's door jam. Look under the hood, inspecting hoses and belts for cracks and leaks. Scan for rodent damage, such as chew marks, including inside the air filter box. If the oil hasn't been changed for six months or longer, have it replaced. Check the car battery and clean off any corrosion around the terminals. If the car is slow to start, use a trickle charger to replenish the battery. For a car that won't start, AAA members can request a jump start or battery replacement. Once you move the car, look at the parking space for signs of a leak on the road. Watch for any warning lights. Uh, also, if your brakes are noisy, it's probably just uh, rust that will polish off after a few drives. If the brakes are sticky or unresponsive, though, have a mechanic look at them. 
Alright. And so, the other car question is sort of for the winter time, but it's on the same basis of, you know, if you haven't used the car. I'm not driving my car much in the winter. How do I keep my battery from dying? Consumer Reports answers, car batteries need regular use to stay charged. So if you're not driving your car for an extended period of time, even just a week or two in some cases, the battery may drain enough to keep it from starting. And a drained battery can void some battery warranties. To avoid the headache of a dead battery altogether, consider buying a trickle or maintainer charger. These are plug-in devices with clamps that attach to a car's battery terminals to keep it charged while parked. Basic trickle chargers are inexpensive, usually less than $50, and slowly replenish the car battery, but they need to be monitored and manually disconnected when the battery is fully charged. A maintainer <coughs> charger is probably a better bet. It aims to preserve the car's battery charge level, turning on and off as needed automatically with no monitoring required. The price is similar to what... Uh, to that of a trickle charger. There are even solar-powered versions if you park outdoors away from power outlets. Another benefit to these chargers, uh, uh, the Consumer Report experts say, is that they can maintain battery strength for more than just your car. They also do the job for lawn tractors and motorcycle batteries as well. So there you go. Uh, that's all your auto questions from Consumer Reports. Ask the experts sections. Uh, that we have compiled over the months. All right, let's get into food, food and cooking questions. What's the difference between enameled coated and uncoated cast iron pans? A cast iron pan with enamel coating doesn't need to be seasoned with vegetable oil to prevent rusting, while an uncoated cast iron pan does. Uh, Plus, the smoother enamel surface is easier to clean, but be aware that enameled coated pans can't be used on a campfire and can chip over time if dropped or hit with a heavy utensil. Replace a chipped pan to be sure no bits of enamel get in your food. Both types retain heat well enough to sear steaks, brown scallops, and bake cornbread. In fact, every cast iron pan we've tested, coated, or uncoated aced our searing tests. Though the pricey Butterpat Joan pan turns out the best cornbread. So let's go ahead and uh, listen to some audio. This is from Cook Culture. Enameled cast iron versus raw cast iron. Uh, and again, from Cook Culture. Let's take a listen. What makes enameled cast iron different than raw cast iron? Hi, Jed from Cook Culture. So last week I asked if anybody had any questions about cast iron, if they were having any confusion about what to buy. And the question that seemed that most people had, which was really interesting, I wasn't really expecting it, was that what makes enameled cast iron different than raw cast iron? Which, thinking about it, that's a super logical question and it makes sense that a lot of people would have that question. I just Personally, I just wasn't really thinking about it. Um, so I put some thought into it. Uh, the main difference that you're gonna get between what typically you would think of as a stove 
cast iron that we sell, or Le Creuset is another very, very well-known international brand. Um, it's going to have, or it does have, an enameled coating all over the pan. And when I say coating, it's actually a rock-hard, baked-on, glass-based application to the finish. Uh, if you would think of like powder coating, if you or, or just basically spray paint, uh, it goes on and then it is cooked and baked on like a glaze. It becomes incredibly hard. It can uh, be damaged. You can chip it. You can hurt it. You can chip into it. Uh, uh, the iron underneath and the surface has a certain strength to it. It's not impossible to damage it, um, but it does take a ton of, of wear and tear. Uh, so you take a raw piece of cast iron, like this field pan here, and then put the enameling coating onto it. They do several different coatings. This one here is a black on black, um, but mostly if you see it in red or blue or yellow or pink or whatever, it's that it has another color attached, just like glaze, over top of the black. So black enamel, then a color enamel, and baked on. Um, so a lot of time you'll have one color on the inside. This has black and then a different color on the outside. Le Creuset has cream on the inside and the colors on the outside. That's just the way in which they decide to make their pans. Um, so advantages and disadvantages. <clears throat> so advantage to Le Creuset and Staub and others um, that do an enameling is that it is easier to maintain. So in essence, you don't have to season it. You can get away with using it without seasoning and you can almost kind of treat it whatever way you want and it will just stand up and perform okay. Uh, seasoning it like raw cast iron will make it work brilliantly. But what I mean by that is if you take a raw piece of cast iron and just use it and don't look after it, it will rust. It'll rust to a point which it will become unusable. Using enamel on cast iron allows you to have more flexibility of how you care and maintain. So you can get away from being kind of mediocre in your maintenance. I do suggest putting in all of the time and energy that you would to maintain a regular cast iron, and it works brilliantly. The advantage then is what you have, is that you have a beautifully colored piece. This one I said is black, but they come in lots of different colors uh, and tons of different shapes. Enameling usually comes in many, many different shapes, which is a nice advantage for all different types of cooking. Um, so that's a, a major advantage of Stobe, where <coughs> primarily cast iron comes in skillets. Sometimes you'll have like an oven, but one size of oven, and they are focused on doing skillets. So disadvantage or advantage for cast iron is that I believe that a, a high quality cast iron to a high quality enameled cast iron, you get a more uh, browned and, and flavored, not, not charred, not blackened, but um, you develop more flavors in the browning using raw over enameled. Um, that is my personal experience in using them. I will usually always reach for a raw cast iron pan, um, specifically a field uh, in my house, but even a, a good quality lodge pan um, that is raw for doing my stovetop cooking in a skillet fry pan. If I am doing sauteing or if I'm using a roasting pan, uh, I love using my enameled cast iron. And I use lots of different sizes, but I particularly use a raw skillet. That's my personal preference. More maintenance. So for those that are looking for less maintenance, 
you can get away with less maintenance with the stove. So there's your biggest advantage of thinking, which one should I buy if I'm thinking of raw versus enameled? Really think about how you like to maintain things. If you love to maintain it and get it just so, and you'll put the time and energy into it, raw is no problem. But if you find, oh, I'm always kind of struggling and, and I want to do it less and get away with it, you'll never have perfect results if you don't maintain it perfectly, but stove will allow you to cook more that way. Uh, lots of people I know are like, oh, I've never seasoned my stove pan and it works great for me. That's, that's awesome. You know, if you're using quality oil and you're using enough of it, you'll get away with it. But if you want to use a lot less oil and you want to have brilliant nonstick, you need to season your pans. So I hope that helps the difference between a enameled cast iron to a raw cast iron and why you would choose one over the other. Okay, so that was from Cook Culture. So let's go ahead and go to America's Test Kitchen. And they have some, uh, we have some audio from their video. Equipment review, the best traditional and enameled cast iron skillets, pans, and out testing, uh, our testing winners. So let's take a listen to that. Few pieces of kitchen gear improve after years of heavy use. In fact, I can only think of one, the cast iron pan. These pans are virtually indestructible. And because they retain heat so incredibly well, they're even better than traditional stainless steel skillets when it comes to browning and searing food or shallow frying. They also gradually get a slick surface patina that releases food easily. In fact, a well-seasoned cast iron skillet can rival and certainly outlast any nonstick pan. And we tested 10 cast iron skillets. Six of them were enameled and four traditional. They're all about 12 inches in diameter. And prices range from $21.99 to nearly $180. Now some were new versions of traditional cast iron pans with innovative design tweaks to the handles and the overall shape. The rest were enameled cast iron. Now enameled pans are covered inside and out with the same kind of porcelain coating that you find on Dutch ovens. Enamel promises some advantages. This is a glass-like coating and it prevents the metal from rusting and keeps it from reacting with acidic foods, which can happen with traditional cast iron. You can scrub an enameled pan with soap, something you shouldn't do with traditional cast iron pans since soap will remove the seasoning that makes it non-stick and rust-free. Now what we've recently seen is that while there's been a few expensive enamel skillets around for years, a lot of new models are appearing at lower prices. And we had to wonder, should we be trading out our traditional pan for an enameled one? Now in every pan we scrambled eggs, basically to see how non-stick the pans were when they were new. Later we seared steaks and we made a tomato caper pan sauce because we wanted to check if the acidity reacted with the pan's surface. We tasted the sauce each time to see if we could detect a metallic flavor. We also skillet roasted thick fish fillets that went from the stove to the oven. We baked cornbread and we fried breaded chicken cutlets. At the end, we scrambled more eggs to see whether the pan's surfaces had gotten more nonstick over the course of testing or less. And finally, to simulate years of kitchen use and abuse, we plunged hot pans into ice water. We banged a metal spoon on their rims. We cut in them with a chef's knife and we scraped them with a metal spatula. Now, as for the enameled pans, we saw that in recipes that required plenty of fat, like steaks or fried chicken cutlets, enameled pans all released foods well and delivered good browning. But with foods that often stick, like fish, eggs, and cornbread, 
the differences between enameled and traditional pans finally emerged. While the enameled pans all performed reasonably well, they tended to grab onto the food a little more. When we made cornbread and flipped over the pans, all the traditional skillets instantly turned out perfectly brown, crisp crusted cornbread, but four of the six enameled models stuck to the cornbread and tore out a chunk of the bottom crust. Our lowest ranked enameled pan by Traumatina pulled off a four by six inch chunk. It also broke up the fish fillets when we tried to flip them. Traditional pans all became slicker every time we used them, but the enameled pans stayed the same, and a few even released slightly less well by the end of testing. Another thing to consider, while traditional cast iron has no upper temperature limits, this is not true of enamel, because high temperatures can cause the coating to develop a million small cracks, which is called crazing. This makes them a little bit less versatile. One pan's maximum temperature was just 400 degrees. But there was one exception, our favorite enameled pan. It fell in line with the traditional pans with no recommended upper temperature limit, and it's even broiler safe. In the final analysis, it's not really about whether enameled or traditional cast iron is the best. Both are gonna give you great heat retention and browning. It's really a matter of thinking about how you wanna cook. If seasoning traditional cast iron still seems scary, paying a little more upfront for an enameled pan is probably worth it. But you keep in mind that an enameled pan isn't ever going to match a well-seasoned traditional cast iron pan for releasing food. And you do have to be careful about banging it around or using metal utensils so that you can keep the enamel from chipping and scratching. If you want to spend less, skip pampering your pan, and you're okay with maintaining the seasoning, traditional cast iron is for you. Now, our favorite among the traditional pans is still the Lodge Classic cast iron skillet, 12-inch size. At about $33, this is a real bargain. Our enameled winner is the Le Creuset Signature 11 and 3 quarters inch iron handle skillet, which costs about $180. And while this is expensive, the value showed up in its toughness. This thing took our abuse without a scratch. For a more economical option, we were impressed by the consistently solid performance of the Mario Batali by Dansk 12 inch open saute pan. At $59.95, it's our best buy enameled pan. Alrighty, so there you go. The comparisons between cast iron and the enameled cast iron. I didn't even know there was a difference, so that's uh, it's good to know. Alright, so the next question from Consumer Reports Ask the Experts section is about TVs. I'm shopping for a new TV and keep hearing about mini LEDs. What are they? This year's hot new technology is the use of mini-LEDs, or miniature light-emitting diodes. In an LCD TV, rather than larger standard-size LEDs, TV manufacturers such as LG, Samsung, and TCL claim that using these smaller LEDs can improve an LCD screen's brightness, contrast, and black levels, essentially how dark the darkest parts of images are. While we've tested only a few sets of this technology so far, we expect to see more over the next year. Why might these mini LEDs work better? On some high-end LCD TVs, standard size LEDs are arranged across the back panel and divided into a few dozen zones that can be separately illuminated or darkened, a feature called local dimming. By shrinking the size of the LEDs, Companies can pack more of them into the same area, allowing them to be divided into a thousand or more zones instead of dozens. 
That allows even more precise local dimming control, meaning dark images on your screen should look darker and you'll see fewer halos. The extra light that leaks through from LEDs when bright objects appear against a dark background. The ultimate effect should be a bright, clear viewing experience. So, let's go ahead and hear some audio from a video from Quick Tech News. And it's called LED versus Mini LED versus Micro LED Explained. Let's take a listen. What's up guys, hope you're doing well. It's a confusing time to be in the market for a new TV and every year it seems to get more confusing than the last. LG have just announced that their new premium LED TVs will be moving to use mini LED technology and Samsung have just announced that they will be having a 110 inch 4K TV using micro LED technology. Now, I've already made a video talking about the differences between OLED and QLED, so if you're interested in that, feel free to check it out. But in this video, we'll be talking about LED, mini LED and micro LED technology and seeing all the differences between them. Before we begin, we have to define the term local dimming because it will be relevant throughout the video. So let's quickly imagine that behind your LED TV, you have 12 lights. Now let's also imagine that on your TV, you have this picture of a night sky with the moon. Ideally, we want the moon to be bright and we want the rest of the sky to be dark as it would be in real life. If all of these LEDs stay lit, the dark parts of the image will also be illuminated. So instead of black, you'll get a sort of dark gray. Local dimming is a solution for this. It allows the LEDs to reduce their brightness in the darker areas of the image which will make the overall picture look better. So let's just start with normal LED TVs because there are several different kinds of technologies within this area as well. The oldest and least impressive technology here is called direct backlit. This means there's a small amount of LEDs behind the LED TV, which work to light up the image. The problem with this is that because there are only a few LEDs behind the screen, dark scenes can end up looking too dark and light scenes can end up looking too light. You'll find this kind of technology mostly in older TVs, but you can still find them in some of the lower end cheapest TVs available right now. And some of these TVs do not have any local dimming at all. More common these days is to have edge lit TVs. So this is where the lights are not behind the screen, but rather they go around the edges of the display. Depending on the TV, you might only have an LED strip on the bottom or the bottom and the top or the sides, or perhaps even all the way around. These TVs can do local dimming, but because the LEDs are around the edges of the screen, dimming or brightening a certain part of the image might end up affecting more of the image than it should. The best LED TVs today have what's called full array local dimming. Now we're again back to having the LEDs behind the screen instead of around it, but instead of having just a few LEDs, we have several hundred. This means we can have several local dimming zones and it means we can make the bright parts of the image bright and we can make the dark parts of the image dark. However, we still can't turn off the LEDs, we can only dim them, so no matter how good this technology is, it still can't compete with OLED and plasma displays where black parts of the image are completely black because they're just off. Mini LED takes this concept and improves on it greatly. 
The Mini comes from the fact that the LEDs can now be much smaller than before. So instead of say 400 LEDs, we can now have 20,000. This means the TV will have much better control of the lighting and zones, which will mean we'll have much better contrast and black levels. This is very impressive, but once again, this is an evolution of the LED TV. The fundamental drawback of LED TVs is that you cannot turn off the backlight, and that still exists here. So this leads us to the ultimate leap in innovation, which is called micro LED. Now, as the name suggests, this is once again related to size. Instead of several thousand tiny LEDs, we now have microscopic LEDs, and there are as many of them as there are pixels on the screen. So if we're talking about a 1080p display, that's a bit over 2 million of them. With 4K, it's over 8 million. But the number of pixels is not the most impressive thing. Rather, it is that finally, the individual pixels can now light up and turn off the same way OLED panels do. This means if an area of the image is black, it will actually be black. Up until now, this has been the primary advantage for OLED TVs, and it is why anyone who wanted the absolute best in picture quality would go for an OLED TV. MicroLED seeks to challenge the throne that is currently held by OLED by matching it in all of the key areas without having any of the drawbacks of OLED technology. MicroLED TVs can be much brighter than OLED TVs, which will make for a better daytime viewing experience, and they also cannot get burn-in, which is a thing that can happen to OLED TVs when they display a static image for an extended period of time, it can actually leave a permanent mark on the TV, although this is becoming less and less of an issue as OLED technology matures. As exciting as micro-LED technology is, it is way too new and expensive for us average consumers. Expect the new TV from Samsung to cost several tens of thousands of dollars. Mini-LED is much more affordable. You can get a 65-inch Mini-LED TV for around 2,000 US dollars, which is comparable to the equivalent OLED TV. If you want to know which one you should pick, it really depends on what you plan to use it for. But again, I would recommend you check out my QLED versus OLED video, which I will link in the description below. Thank you guys so much for watching as always. If you enjoyed this video, please don't forget to leave a like and subscribe, and I'll see you guys next time. Okay, again, that was from Quick Tech News. And that was the video, it was named LED versus Mini LED versus Micro LED Explained. All right, our last uh, CR question of the show, Consumer Report Ask the Expert question is a technology question. I get so many robocalls. Is there any way to stop them? Robocall frequency actually dropped in the U.S. in 2020 by 22% to the lowest level in two years. This is how Consumer Report uh, answers this question. According to the Robocall Blocking and Tracking Service, UMail, this decrease was probably helped by anti-spoofing technology provided by major telecom companies called Shake and Stir. The COVID-19 pandemic may have also had an impact by disrupting overseas call centers where many robocalls originate. 
Even so, U.S. consumers still received 45.9 billion spam and telemarketing calls last year, and robocalls are rebounding to pre-pandemic levels, largely because some of these foreign call centers are reopening. You can make moves that will reduce the number of calls you're getting. If you use a major phone carrier, you may already benefit from Shake and Stir, which helps improve the accuracy of caller ID information. In some cases, you may have to activate a blocking feature yourself. Many phone settings also let you block all calls from identified or unidentified callers. But there is a downside. It could block calls from people you want to talk to but who aren't in your contacts list, such as a doctor or delivery person. That means you have to keep updating your contact list so that you don't miss an important call. You can also try a third-party call blocking app, but there are few restrictions on what these apps can do with your data. So keep in mind that you're trusting developers with your call data. And I always, I always try to keep my uh, contact list updated because I always want to see on the caller ID like who would be calling. So anyways, uh, Theo Joe has some information that can stop 99% of spam robocalls right now. So let's take a listen. How's it going guys? I'm Theo Joe and today we're going to talk about how to block robocalls. Obviously over the past few years they've been getting crazier and crazier. So we're going to talk about how you can mitigate it. Probably not remove 100% of the robocalls you get, obviously, but hopefully like 99% of them will be gone at the end of this video. So that's what we're going to talk about, different ways to do it. Now, I'm going to be specifically mentioning stuff having to do with the USA and US carriers, but a lot of this will also carry over into other countries as well, so it should work. Now, starting off, the first step, it's really obvious, but I still have to mention it, and that is the do not call registry. So it's do not call.gov, this is for the USA. And obviously this is only going to remove spam calls from companies that are following the rules in the first place. So any fraud or anything is clearly not going to be affected by this do not call list, but you can go on there and then any companies that are actually following the law hopefully will not be calling you. But even still, this list doesn't apply to several other legal companies like political groups, charities, surveys. A lot of this stuff is super annoying and for some reason the do not call list does not apply to them legally. So it's something worth putting on because it's so quick, but just know that it's not gonna obviously do much, but it's still better than nothing. Of course, that's just for the USA. Your country might also have an equivalent of the do not call registry. So for example, in the UK, I believe it's called the Telephone Preference Service. I think you go on there and put in your phone number and maybe that will mitigate it. So you might just be able to go on Google and search your country do not call list and then see what comes up. All right, now next up, the next layer of protection is gonna be whatever spam blocking service your particular cell phone carrier offers. So a lot of carriers now have some proprietary app that they use. So starting off with AT&T, for example, there's AT&T Call Protect, which is basically just rebranded version of Haya, that's a third-party service. They kind of use the same list, I guess. But with the AT&T Call Protect, there is a free and paid version. The free version is pretty much gonna do anything you need, like auto fraud and spam blocking. And then the paid version just gives you a little bit more, like for $3.99 a month, it's like enhanced caller ID, reverse number lookup, and then custom call controls which just lets you kind of categorize different, I guess, categories of spam, like if you want certain types. 
but really the free version is gonna do 99%. For Verizon, they also have an app called Verizon Call Filter, and this again has a free and paid version. The free version is spam detection and a filter, so again, that's pretty much all you need, but the paid version, which is like three bucks a month, also has like a personal block list, a risk meter, I don't think much of this is necessary, so probably just go with the freeze thing. For T-Mobile, they have something called Scam Block, which is not really an app, it's just something you enable in your account settings. And I believe this is free for pretty much all plans as long as it's post-paid. So it just kind of happens in the background after you enable it in your account settings. So you might have to download the T-Mobile account settings app first. And then Sprint has what's called their Premium Caller ID app, which is $3 a month. But this seems really basic and doesn't seem to even do as much as a lot of the free things do. So I wouldn't even bother getting this, maybe just get one of the third party apps we're about to talk about. And then of course, if you have a different carrier, especially if it's one outside the United States, you can probably just go on Google and search the name of your carrier and then call spam filter app or something like that. And it should come up with something if there is one. All right, now the third layer of protection would be an independent call spam blocking app. And there are a lot of these, and we can go over some of the most popular ones, talk about the differences. The first of these, which is really popular, is called Haya, and it has a both free and paid version, but the free version is gonna do pretty much everything you need. So this is gonna be able to block fraud and nuisance calls, obviously that's the whole point, and it also allows you to report fraud calls if it's not blocked, so you can kinda search for it and then write a report and possibly see what other people have written about a phone number. So this is also good if it's not marked as spam and you're just kind of wondering what the phone number is and then a lot of people might be reporting oh they called asking for a survey or some nonsense like that it also has another feature which is pretty standard called neighbor spoof protection so what this basically does is when a scammer a lot of times they will spoof the first six digits of your phone number so that it looks like oh this kind of looks like my phone number and then you're interested in it and you might answer it so it'll just block any phone numbers that have the first same six digits as yours and of course if you have a contact in your contact list that has that it'll whitelist those but 99 percent of the time if you get a phone call that's like almost the same as yours it's just a spam number however this does not always protect against certain trickier spoofers and we will get to another app that will be able to cover that in a minute and then for the premium version of haya it doesn't seem to really have that much more protection it's three bucks a month and really the only extra thing is you get faster updates like three times as often and then premium caller ID lookup or something like that. So I don't know if it's really worth the three bucks a month. As a side note, there is another app called Mr. Number that I've talked about in the past, and they seem to have merged Haya and Mr. Number. So I don't think they're different at all. Mr. Number is basically just the equivalent of the premium version of Haya. It's paid only, but they're exactly the same. So you don't need both. All right, now the next app is called Nomo Robo, and it is a paid only version. It's about two bucks a month. And this works a little bit differently. Instead of just having a broad spam list, I don't know how the other apps work exactly, but how this one works at least is basically, it kind of crowdsources the spam list. So it takes a look at everyone using the app and if a whole bunch of people start getting spam calls at the same time from a group of numbers or a certain number, then it will detect, okay, this is probably just a spam network calling people and then it will pretty much automatically add 
those numbers to the list so that when it starts calling even more people, it'll be blocked by anyone using that app. So it's a little bit different as far as I can tell. Because it is paid only, I'd recommend maybe just getting this if the free version of Hiya doesn't work and then you can go and this might be a another step up or at least in conjunction, you can probably use both. So hopefully this one will work in addition to the other one if it doesn't alone. And if those don't work, there is yet another app that works on an even different principle called RoboKiller. Again, this is a paid only app and it's about $4 a month or $30 a year, depending on the plan you pick. And how this one works is instead of doing the filtering on the device, basically you have it forward all your calls to their service. So it basically forwards the calls to the service and then they kind of do the filtering on their side. One advantage of this is that if it is confirmed to be a spam call, it will not even go to voicemail. A lot of the other apps, what happens is just the way that iOS works and maybe on Android, is that even if it blocks an app, it'll still forward that call to voicemail. But with this, it won't happen at all. And also another interesting unique feature of this is because it's handled in their service side, they actually have what's called answer bots. So if it's confirmed to be a spam caller, you can kind of like choose a robot to talk back to the other robot. And if it's a telemarketer, it'll annoy him and stuff like that. And you get a recording. So a little bit more features, but it does happen off your phone. So if you don't like the idea of that, then you might not want to use it. So as far as the regular block list apps go, those seem to be the most popular ones. There's Haya, again, Nomo Robo and Robo Killer. But again, we did talk about how there are spoof neighbor numbers and those are a little bit harder to block because they aren't going to necessarily show up on any spam list because they're blocking your number and your numbers are obviously probably not going to be on a spam list and while i believe all of those apps do have a feature where it blocks numbers if it's the first six digits equal a lot of these new scammers have gotten wise to that and i've actually gotten several spoofed spam calls that have only copied the first five digits of my phone number so say my phone number is 555 one, two, three, five, 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 then they will start their phone number with five, 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 one, two, and then whatever. And then that won't get caught in the neighbor spoof filters and still get through. But there is an app that can block that. So on iOS, this app is called Wide Protect. It is a paid app, but it's only $3 one-time fee. So it's not a subscription, which is nice. And what this app does, it's really simple. It just creates a filter with a wildcard of any phone number starting with whatever numbers you want. So in my example, if your number is 555-123, whatever, you can simply add a filter for any number that starts with 555-12, and then all those other numbers will get blocked even if it doesn't show up in one of those other paid apps filters. Now, Wide Protect is only available on iOS, but there is another app on Android that can also do starting with filters, and that is called Calls Blacklist. So that seems to be able to do the same thing, and I think it is free. So if you have Android, that should work as well. Now, here's one side note. If you're using iOS, something you might notice and I can explain, and that is whenever you use one of these apps, you have to go into the call settings in your settings and then allow these apps to manage your block list. And you'll notice that a lot of these apps have multiple lists. It'll be like Mr. Number or Haya 123, and even with Wide Protect, there's like 25 of them. And you're like, why are there so many? Why do I have to enable all of this? And basically it's because iOS only allows lists of 2 million numbers per extension, they're called. So if an app wants to block more than 2 million numbers, it has to create 
more than one of these entries. So for wide protect, for example, depending on how many numbers you filter out with this wildcard, it'll tell you how many of these you need to enable. So if you block the first five digits, I think it blocks like 200,000 possibilities. And it tells you here, you only need to enable the number one entry. And then I guess if you start blocking 50 million numbers worth, you're gonna have to enable all of them, but you don't have to enable every single one. At least for the Wide Protect app, the other ones I think you do need to enable them all. So hopefully if you're using one of these apps or several of them and you combine several of these techniques, then you should be able to block pretty much 99% of robocalls coming in the future. As far as I know, at least with iOS, there's no real way to block them from going into voicemail. You might be able to do that with Android. iOS just has restrictions on these. But again, what I would recommend is just kind of start going down the list as you realize, okay, this isn't working 100% of the time. I'll add on this new layer and so on and just kind of keep tacking on the apps as much as you're willing to pay for until kind of one of the nets catches all of them. If you have other suggestions for cool tricks you might have realized that I did not talk about, let us know down in the comments. And also be sure to check down there because someone might have left a suggestion that is actually useful and you might want to see that. If you want to keep watching, I'll put some other videos right here. You can just click on those. And if you want to subscribe, I make a couple new videos a week, so it should be worth it. So thanks so much for watching, guys. I'll see you next time. Have a good one. All right. And that was from Theo Joe uh, talking about how to stop 99% of the robocalls that you get and recently I've been seeing more and more um, commercials for that robo killer I guess that's what it's called and they almost seem like on the commercial that they a telemarketer calls and somebody actually answers and then annoys them <laughs> annoys the telemarketer with their answers like on one commercial I saw he was talking about, oh, no, he's surrounded by sharks or something. Can you hold on? And, oh, no, here comes a shark by my boat or something like that. <laughs> so odd. But I don't know if that's a premium feature that you have to pay extra for <laughs> just to get a kick out of annoying a telemarketer or what. So I thought that was kind of a kind of a a strange feature to have. But I guess uh, people are interested in it if they pay for it. Right. All right, so this is ending our show. Wow, we packed a lot of information into the show, that's for sure. So I hope uh, you got something out of it. This is the Consumer Review Report on Tube City Online Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. Now, this show is heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at 6 p.m., and Thursday at 9 a.m., but... If you miss our regularly scheduled shows on Tube City Online Radio, podcasts of these shows are available on wmck.fm slash crr, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. And if you have any comments and questions about what you heard on the show today, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at... Uh, at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. And if you have any product ideas or services that you would like to hear about on the show, any information of any of that sort, you can also email me at Consumer Review Report at 
gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. And again, if you do not hear or you miss our regularly scheduled show, Sundays at 4 p.m., Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 a.m., Again, podcasts of these shows are available on wmck.fm slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. I'm Diane Rebecca, wishing everyone a safe and good week.